in 2050, what I would like to see is really that marine renewables is, is viewed as a technology and resource that is on the same grounds as solar or wind. It's just as common and known about and understood. Maybe, you know, we don't have projects that are as large as some of those or hydro, but still it's much more commonplace. Welcome to The Flux Capacitor, a podcast about the future of electricity. I'm Francis Bradley of Electricity Canada. This is episode 065, number 65 of The Flux Capacitor. I'm continuing the process of seeking to apply what I've learned from more than a year of conversations on the Net Zero Challenge. Some of the conclusions I've drawn from these conversations? Well, first, that an all-of-the-above approach to non-emitting electricity will be required. Second, hydrogen will eventually be a big part of our energy future. Third, we'll need an effective international emissions trading regime. And last, but certainly not least, few if any major projects will move forward in the future without enduring partnerships with Indigenous peoples. On this episode of the pod, I'm going down that first track and looking at technologies that will most certainly be part of that all-of-the-above approach. With my guest today, Elisa Oberman. Executive Director with Marine Renewables Canada. Alyssa joined me to chat about the work of Marine Renewables Canada. We discussed the current state of play in the marine renewables space, regulatory challenges, international opportunities, and the prospect of future energy needs being met by tidal, offshore wind, wave, and river current. We also take a tangent to talk a little bit about hydrogen. We close our conversation with Alyssa's recommendation to add to the Flux Capacitor Book Club. Here is my conversation with Alyssa Oberman, recorded on Zoom in early November 2022. Alyssa, it has been a while that we've been wanting to talk. Um, I'm glad you were able to to make it to the podcast today. So let's, uh, let's dig into it. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Francis. I'm looking forward to the discussion. So we've been talking on the podcast about Net Zero 2050 and what is going to have to be done to be able to get there. And clearly, you know, one of the huge areas of growth, and we've talked a little bit about this, is going to be offshore and marine renewables and those sorts of things. So why don't we start off with um, maybe if you could give the listener a bit of a sense of what your organization looks like, um, you know, kind of, kind of, you know, where where you're situated, and then we can talk about the fun stuff about what the what the future is going to look like and what the potential is. So, give us the four one one on marine renewables Canada. Yeah, absolutely. So we've actually been a lot around for quite a while. Um, we began in 2004 in British Columbia, and a lot of that was around the interest in wave energy. Okay. So actually one of the first founding members, I believe, I mean, I wasn't around at that time, but was BC Hydro. Uh, and there was a lot of interest. And I think that, you know, the thinking then was that marine renewables was really going to take off quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and obviously, you know, we found that access to capital, finance, I mean, there's a lot of hurdles that have made it take a little a bit longer. Mm-hmm. Um, but essentially, I mean, our focus is on really four different types of marine renewable energy. So tidal energy, uh, offshore wind, wave energy, and river current. 
river current may sound kind of interesting because obviously it's not thought of as, you know, ocean or offshore, but it's mainly comes down to the fact that the technologies for tidal energy and river are very similar. Right. Uh, in terms of how they work. So you'll see developers that are, you know, they're, they're looking at both resources as an opportunity. Um, and as, you know, time went on, we realized there was a lot of potential in the Bay of Fundy for tidal. Mm -hmm. uh, that's when the association started branching out more nationally uh, outside of British Columbia. That's when I got more involved. Uh, I was working with government before that. And um, we started doing a lot of work with government, but researchers, communities, uh, suppliers, obviously project and technology developers, just around building up the, the tidal energy you know, resource and sector around the Bay of Fundy. So that's kind of where things have uh, catalyzed from. Um, and really our, you know, our main focus is to advance the sector um, right. so by advocacy, business development, both, you know, um, domestically, but we also do quite a bit of international business development support for our members. Uh, and then I think a really key role of ours is also just education, outreach, mm -hmm. engagement. Um, I mean, energy in general is a tough subject for the general public really to wrap their head around, as we mm -hmm. all know. Yeah. Uh, and this is even further, I think, away from people's minds in terms of, you know, what is going to power the future. So yeah. we try to do as much of that as we can. Okay. Hey, you mentioned you mentioned you were you were in government before. One of the questions I ask folks that come on the podcast is about their journey. And I always find it interesting the, the the journeys that one takes. So, what was uh, what was your journey to uh, to to head up the marine renewables? Um, I, I always make the joke when you were a, when you were a young child in the playground, was your dream always to lead a marine renewables national association? Yeah, as all these things are definitely not that straightforward. So, yeah. uh, I actually like my and my bachelor's degree was in English, so it was very far from like policy and science and you know engineering kind of world. Wow! Um, but I was very drawn to working in like some type of environmental NGO or doing something like that after. Right. Uh, yeah. So I decided to go back to school to do a master's in policy or public administration. Um, and got an internship with the Nova Scotia Department of Energy. Uh, mm. and at the time, it was actually an offshore oil and gas regulations, which would definitely not be my, you know, my pick. But my thinking was, as long as I get involved in the energy sector somehow, I'll start learning and there'll be you no know, opportunity down the line. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I worked with the, the province on their uh, renewable electricity plan. So it was the first one that the province had ever developed. Right. Uh, and that kind of morphed into working more on tidal energy, marine mm -hmm. renewable legislation. I met industry that way. So uh I ended up working for the province for about three and a half years and then shifted over to Marine Renewables Canada. Um, and the, the interesting thing about it is I, uh, I mean, I like renewable energy in general, but I worked for a few years in Toronto. This is between my two degrees uh, mm -hmm. in marketing. And I promised myself, I'm going to find a way to get back to the ocean. Like I need to find mm -hmm. a job that brings me there. And this, so this basically combines a lot of my passions, like just being by the ocean, but renewable right. energy, um, and I think also, I mean, a lot of the benefits uh, also will be seen by rural communities. I grew up in a really small town, so yep. it, it, it just combines a lot of the things I'm really interested in. So you're 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 not in Toronto now. Presumably, you're somewhere really close to where the tides are. Yes, exactly. So I'm in Halifax, uh, uh -huh. and I guess that's part of our story with the association too. Is that we uh, migrated from British Columbia to Halifax? Oh, again, a lot of that was for. Uh, 
just doing work around the Bay of Fundy uh, right. and it just makes sense, but we do work nationally. Uh, but I'm happy to be in Halifax. It's, it's easy to get to where, you know, things are happening with the industry in general. Yeah. And, and, and you've said to me that, that you're, you're also looking at, at uh, uh, expanding activities uh, um, uh, elsewhere across the country, all the way out to BC. So you've, you, you, it migrated to, to the East Coast and now your things are picking up once again on, on the West Coast as well? Yeah, um, a bit of a different kind of opportunity. So, uh-huh. uh, I mean, when we think of the East Coast for marine renewables, it's like kind of, I would, it's like almost the mecca of the resources you'd be interested in. We have the best tidal resources here. Yep. The Bay of offshore wind is very, a very good resource. Um, in British Columbia, a lot of our work is actually focused on remote and indigenous communities because okay. them that have proximity to marine renewable resources. Um, but I am always mindful this is a new technology, you know, considerably new. Um, so one of the things we've been doing a lot of work with there is working with the University of Victoria and some of the programs they have been developing around um, clean energy and remote communities. So mm-hmm. it's, it's earlier stage uh, and there's obviously different types of risks and opportunities there, but that would be most of our focus. And then we do have a few members also that are looking at offshore wind uh, potential, mm-hmm. but it's been different there. I mean, the, the policy environment is, you know, is different between, you know, between provinces. And so I think in BC with them already having a very clean, uh, electricity mix, um, you know, marine renewable energy hasn't been as high priority, mm-hmm. whereas in Nova Scotia, you know, there is that huge, uh, drive to reduce coal use in the electricity system. So right. just mm-hmm. different opportunities, different reasons and drivers essentially. Mm-hmm. So, so we've we've had the uh, um, benefit uh, of working together now for, I guess, a couple of years. That and it led to the establishment last year of the Electricity Alliance Canada. Um, that uh, both my my association, your association, are, are among the founding members. But a lot of the conversations that that we had when we were establishing uh, the Electricity Alliance Canada were about the future potential that, you know, the government's estimate of, of, you know, needing two to three times more clean electricity to reach our 2050 goals. So how much of that growth that we're going to need in the system, do you think we're going to be able to count on um, marine renewable technologies to, to, to fill? Cause like my sense is like right now it, it's a very, very small portion, but it's going to probably be really, really big, isn't it over the long term? Yeah, I mean, as you know, Francis, I mean, what I look at a lot is in studies that show that we're going to need, you know, two to three times more clean electricity or, you know, who knows, maybe even more. Yeah. And then combined with this, you know, push and and um, aspiration to produce green hydrogen or green ammonia in Canada. I mean, that that changes the narrative drastically, I think, for how much yeah. renewable energy resources we're going to need. Yeah. Um, and so I look at it in two different ways. I think there's like I said, um, opportunity, a lot of opportunities for remote communities where marine renewables could be used, but also, um, you know, those are complementary to other renewables like solar or wind. Mm-hmm. Uh, they all have different, you know, unique attributes that would help to uh, bring on more of all of them. Um, so I look at that opportunity as something where we'll see more more marine renewables um, coming online, but those are obviously much smaller projects, right? So you don't look at right. it as kind of how it's going to impact the grid. Um, where I see probably, you know, the biggest potential for marine renewable energy to have an impact would definitely be on the East Coast, um, Nova Scotia, potentially Newfoundland with offshore wind. Uh, and those will be, I mean, they could be very large projects, but I think mm-hmm. what we would see are, are 
larger offshore wind projects before tidal. And again, it just comes down to the maturity of the technology, uh, mm. um, ability to get financing and those kinds of things. Yeah. So maybe let's unpack some of those just uh, for the, for the, for the listener title. Um, and, and I know this, there's been a lot of talk about like, even when I started um, in the electricity sector, um, there, there was a lot of talk about developing uh, title uh, in the, uh, in the, in the Bay of Fundy. Um, there, there've been, I think, a, you know, a, a number of demonstration projects that have been run, but what's the sort of state of play? Um, if I remember correctly from some of the stuff that I followed, one of the problems is the tides are too strong, right? Um, so yeah. wh- wh- where do things stand now with with tidal power? Yeah. So we're in an interesting place. Um, the Both federal and provincial government now have really set the stage in terms of the supports and funding and um basically giving title developers, a few of them that have, you know, been able to access that, the ability to then tap into private sector investment as well. So they kind of have that perfect package of, you know, what they would need to move forward. Um, And I would say the the issue now is not the technologies. Um, I mean, there's some that have been tested here, but also internationally, like we're at a stage now where we know the technology works. So, Mm -hmm. and can work in, you know, high flow environments. And I would say that the bigger challenge now is the regulatory environment. Oh, okay. Um, and that would be more of what's kind of delaying, you know, um, scaling, like scaling up with these projects. And a lot of that also revolves back to your point about, you know, these are very high flow environments. Um, and what is interesting is the technologies that are needed for monitoring, uh, mm-hmm. you know, potential environmental interactions. That's where there's some challenges in, in finding the technologies that will work the best in that type of high flow environment. So I look at it as an opportunity, like it's an opportunity for innovation in Canada around these types of technologies. Um, but it's a bit of a chicken in the egg because with the, you know, with the regulatory environment, the way it is, there is a requirement to be able to show, you know, what the potential risks would be to uh, marine life. But mm. it's very difficult to do that until you actually have a, a device operating. And you can't get a device operating until you. Right. Yeah. So we're we're in the midst of, of trying to solve that problem. And I think, you know, the to me, the biggest um, <laughs> the, my biggest recommendation around that. And I think what you need to see is just a very clear path uh, for industry to understand how they would move from, you know, scaling from one device to two to three to four, you know, however many their project requires. Uh, and that also helps with investment because it obviously provides some certainty as well in terms of, you know, when investors will get their ROI and and that kind of thing. But that would be the, the, the key issue right now. Um, and I think that once those kinds of regulatory challenges are solved, that you also see that there's more you know investment and, and capital available mm-hmm. um, and ability to move on to the next stages. And also costs will come down. Right. Because as we know, with technology demonstration, as you build out more and there's more volume and scale costs start coming down, just like we saw in the wind sector. Absolutely. Yeah. We're at a, a bit of a turning point. So I think, I mean, I think once we get past this, we'll see, see more happening with title, but I mean, we do have some very promising technologies um, that are you know, slated to be deployed within the next year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that would be, that would be very helpful for the sector. Mm-hmm. 
Interesting. The, the regulatory challenges that I, I, I certainly understand that, and I could understand how how that gives you the sort of the chicken and the egg situation. What about alignment between levels of government? Because you know, in 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 some of the uh, other conversations that I've had with different technologies. There's been concerns expressed about kind of a lack of alignment between uh, federal and provincial and territorial authorities. Is this uh, hopefully an area where we we do have some good alignment or are there still some outstanding questions between uh, federal and and provincial? I think when it comes to title, I actually haven't seen that many issues with that. Um, One of the reasons for that is just the way the policies and the sector was developed. It was very collaborative between the federal and provincial governments. Mm. Uh, And they also established things like a one window committee with all all regulators from both levels of government. Um, Initially, we'll see how things pan out as time goes on. But I I mean, I think those kinds of things were very helpful. And it's very clear in the marine environment, um, you know, who has jurisdiction over what, essentially. Okay. Uh, provincial, in, in the Bay of Fundy, that's still provincial seabed. And then, so that's known as, you know, Nova Scotia lands, but then any marine life navigation is, is federal. And so gotcha. it, it's very black and white. Where I think we're gonna see challenges potentially could be around um, offshore wind, because it is very new. Mm-hmm. Uh, and but I, I, there is a lot of work underway right now between both levels of government with the amendments to the uh, offshore court acts, mm-hmm. and so those that legislation already creates a you know a cooperative and collaborative type of agreement between the, the federal and provincial government. So my hope is that those things, since they're in place already, will be you know help to make things very clear. But you know th- there could be issues moving ahead that we haven't thought of yet. Also, yeah. So yeah, let's then let's let's shift over to, to, to offshore wind. Um, that sounds as though, from from what you said earlier, that, that that's a little more uh, mature uh, at this stage and, and likely to be the area of probably significant growth in the in the medium term. I think so. Yeah, and I mean it's it's more mature. I should say internationally. There's I mean huge offshore yeah. wind development. Uh, in the UK, so a lot in the North Sea, um, yep. and now the United States is really putting a big push on offshore wind development. They have a goal of 30 gigawatts by right. 2030, so we've been right. watching that really closely. Uh, and it's interesting, for a long time, everyone said to us, offshore wind's never going to happen, don't pay attention, you know, focus on the other things, it's it's not needed, because again, you, you know, you know, Canada's so large, there's so mm-hmm. many re- different renewable resources. Um, but also the offshore wind projects need to be quite large to be, um, you know, to 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 actually make sense from an right. economic standpoint. Yeah. And Nova Scotia, Atlantic Canada in general, we just don't have that kind of electricity demand. So mm-hmm. that was the challenge. And so and there wasn't really a market, uh, you know, for many years in terms of if it's offshore wind was developed, where would it go? Where would the electricity go? And so it wasn't until really, honestly, this year that uh, the conversation changed a lot. And a lot of it had to do with the federal hydrogen strategy. Mm-hmm. A lot of it had to do with crisis in Ukraine and, and um, you know, the energy um, uh, challenges in Europe and the need for more uh, uh, electrical and more energy. And so as that was happening, I, I think you know, at least in Atlantic Canada, they were looking at how do we, you know, how can we um, contribute to that, but also we need to start thinking about energy security and, and our needs and Canadian needs. So that's when the whole discussion around offshore wind to green hydrogen or ammonia um, yep. started becoming more prevalent. 
uh, and because offshore wind technology is, it's, you know, it is more mature, it's more financeable. That's why I see it probably growing uh, more quickly. I mean, it's going to take a while before we get there. Those projects can take about eight to 10 years uh, before they're, you know, up and running. Yeah. So, uh, so, but, and then once that happens, I mean, I think we'll see quite large, you know, we could see quite large projects. Um, yeah. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. In fact, I've uh, talked to a couple of people about this as well. And, you know, these sorts of projects that that probably only take, a, uh, you know, uh, 18 months to to, uh, to two years to build. But as you say, it's eight to 10 years, but that's to go through all of the hoops for approvals and, and siting and, and all of those. So so that sounds like it's it's just as big a challenge for offshore wind as it is for any other kind of infrastructure, is it? Yeah, and we're starting in a lot of ways from scratch uh, because okay. there's really a clear regulatory framework or roadmap for how it's going to be developed. Uh, hmm. Again, like it's the kind of thing that I see as an opportunity. I mean, there's a lot of challenges there, but we have an opportunity to, you know, learn from other jurisdictions, yep. learn what not to do, and and do things in a way that meets the needs of Canadians, and and you know, it's done the way that we need it to, how we need it to roll out. So, so we'll see. Um, and I think, I mean, right now, the expectation is that the amendments to the Accord Acts would be done by mid-2025. Mm-hmm. So that's essentially when you'd see a leasing process begin. Right. Uh, and although there's a lot of talk about, you know, using offshore wind for green hydrogen or ammonia, I do still think there's potential for projects to provide some electricity to, to the grid mm-hmm. as well, right? So like 2030, um, maybe if you know we move really quickly, but beyond 2030, that's where I see you know there's there's that potential for offshore wind to contribute. Yeah. So so you, you mentioned um, uh, offshore wind for uh, production of hydrogen and, and ammonia, um, as well as offshore wind to to feed into the grid. I think I think folks can get their head fairly easily around the, the concept of offshore wind feeding into an electricity grid. Um, could you talk a little bit about like how does how does the hydrogen work? Is that are, are we is, does that actually kind of give us the ability to to store electricity and and then ship it? Yeah, potentially. So there's different concepts out there, and and it, it you're right, it is very new. It's a very new concept that yeah. uh, I mean is also being explored internationally. So there's not you know t- tons of examples of how how it's working and up and running. It's very much in kind of this emerging stage in mm-hmm. Canada, but also globally. So there's different concepts that I've heard. One is, you know, having an offshore hydrogen hub. So <laughs> it won't necessarily ever, ever come to shore uh, or it would be, you know, coming to shore and uh, uh, and then shipped potentially either, you know, overseas or uh, to you know, other parts of Canada if we were using it within like a domestic supply chain or, or right. use. Uh, and obviously there's, you know, that brings into um, question, you know, some of the things around shipping costs, mm-hmm. uh, what does that look like? And so there's a lot around kind of how you develop that supply chain even, or the logistics and the infrastructure for, for these projects as a whole. Yeah. Uh, and my understanding is Nova Scotia currently is developing a hydrogen action plan. So I think that will start to help identify and, and answer some of the questions that mm-hmm. we all have around policies and supports. Um, but it is very new territory. But again, this is kind of the world I've lived in uh, since starting with MRC is all these, you know, questions around emerging technology. We've never really been in a place where we're dealing with things that are completely uh, understood. <laughs> 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 or, or certain, like, 
keeps you from from ever getting bored, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, it's exciting. It's good to be in. I like the innovation space. I mean, it's, yeah, it's yeah. interesting to be involved and feel that you have some opportunity to contribute and support that as well. Right. So conceptually, we, we're, we're talking about using um, a, a wind turbine to power an electrolyzer to produce hydrogen. Yes, exactly. It sounds as though there would be opportunities for that technology because you, you talked earlier about remote and indigenous communities. Uh, is mm -hmm. that the same sort of thinking around around those communities as well to, to use this technology either directly or in, in kind of like a hybrid fashion, wind and, and hydrogen? Um, I mean, to be honest, I haven't had that many discussions with communities looking at that per se, mm -hmm. mainly because, I mean, maybe for onshore wind. So that, you know, okay. That had as much of a discussion about I right. think for offshore wind um I mean the projects have like to be economical or at least my understanding from what industry is looking at they would be projects of about 500 megawatts or more mm -hmm. about a gigawatt being kind of the sweet spot for what would make sense for hydrogen production uh and so that would be a starting point so I I, I mean I haven't I'm not I'm sure of any remote communities that would be looking at that at this point Right. I think it might be more so, you know, microgrids or that type of thing. Gotcha, yeah. gotcha. Okay, it does. It does sound as though all of the uh, uh, all of the ingredients would be all in one place when you're thinking in terms of um, green hydrogen. You want a, a source of renewable electricity, and then you need some water uh, to run your through your electrolyzer. <laughs> so if you're offshore wind, uh, all of the pieces seem to be seem to be there. I can understand why there's interest in this space. Yeah, and I, th I mean, the reason um, it's become high interest, I think also to, to government is that, uh, I mean, we obviously have onshore wind we can use or hydro resources, yeah. but also the scale that is required to develop the amount of, you know, or to produce the amount of hydrogen or ammonia needed for export. Gotcha. Very large projects. So offshore wind kind of, you know, checks that box, uh, which is why it's become, I think, a, a focus for how would we develop all this hydrogen that we, you know, potentially need in the future. Yeah. All right. Well, hey, listen, one of the ones that I find interesting is you mentioned river because this is essentially taking similar kinds of technology that are being developed for tile and for wave and adapting it for river flows. You know, every now and then I'll I'll see through my news feeds some new technology that somebody's trying to develop that, you know, in uh, in inflow small generators and stuff like that. How far away do you think those sorts of technologies are? They're, they're still pretty much at the experimental stage at this stage? Um, I actually think, I mean, it's very close to tidal in terms of the robustness of the technologies. I think the challenges are one, I mean, a lot of the places in Canada where there's interest, there's also ice. Uh, uh, yeah, okay. There's that where there's, you know, studies being done to understand how much of the year a river, you know, that those high potential areas of rivers ice covered or have ice flows, that kind of thing. And there, I mean, there is research that is starting to help, you know, dictate what that would, that market could potentially look like. Mm -hmm. um, and then the other would be with remote communities. I mean, we know this with all renewables, but because this is a newer technology, it's also about, you know, training, uh, ensuring that the communities can, like the O&M required, you know, and so de-risking the technology. So, that's part of it. Um, and I think the other is just that, you know, a lot of times these communities would be looking at solar or wind probably first, uh, mm -hmm. as, you know, a lower risk. Um, so the technology is there. And the other interesting thing with rivers, I mean, one of the reasons we are a national association is also because 
there's rivers in every province. So yeah. there's the ability yep. to tap into this. So what's interesting about it is it's a much larger market, really, when you look mm -hmm. at it globally uh, compared to tidal or, or wave because uh, rivers are, I mean, I think it's just, it, there's more abundant of a resource. Mm -hmm. So um, what's the, the prospects of, you mentioned these four technologies, tidal, wind, wave, uh, river currents, where's the, where's the investment flowing to today? Is it principally flowing towards offshore uh, wind? Offshore, or? offshore wind, yes, I would say so. Um, I mean, if you were to look at also some of the projections of countries globally in terms of what you know they're looking for for offshore wind build out, it's, it's massive. Like that market is just going to really take off. I mean, it already is, but uh, and I, and again, it comes down to just, it's started before title, you know, there's no, there's more learnings, the technologies have time to mature. Um, but I do think that if there's some major success, oh, just over the next year or two with title, not just in Canada, but in other places where it's being demonstrated, mm -hmm. we'll start to see more investment there as well. Um, cause we have been, you know, we've kind of weathered out some of the harder years now. Yeah. Uh, and I think, we're all in a, I mean, I think a more optimistic position than we have been in the past where we know we're going to need as much of this clean electricity as, as possible in these solutions. So I think we're in a bit of a different place, but I think it's, it's a bit different. Like I mean, in the past, we thought we're going to have these very large tidal energy farms, you know, mm -hmm. large. I think it's going to be a bit different than that. I think it will, will be more about geographical, you know, locations like islands and uh, coastal communities and mm -hmm. places where they have a very good, um, tidal resource, but maybe just not as large. Um, so we'll, we'll see how it goes, but I could see that as being kind of the next after offshore wind where, where we'd see investment flowing. Yeah. Okay. And you, you also mentioned one of the, one of the things that the organization uh, does is international business development. So what, what does that look like? Is that, is that, um, looking at, at uh, taking technologies being developed in Canada and finding markets for them internationally, or is it the reverse? finding technologies internationally and, and trying to bring them to Canada, or is it both? Yeah, so a bit of both. Okay. Um, and as I mentioned, it's, you know, we're at this space where, or we've been working in this space where it's innovative technologies, they're new, but they're new everywhere around the world, or, or right. newer, I should say. Yeah. So what the one of the things we identified really early on is there is really, at least when it comes to tidal and wave and, and river current, there's a, a lack of a global supply chain. So it's not necessarily about trade or business development just for the technologies, but also for the suppliers uh, that are that are working on them. So our strategy has been, you know, get as much experience in Canada working on some of these early tidal projects, for example, mm -hmm. and export that expertise around the world. So that's that's been really the key focus is how to get the suppliers um, working and and also I should say diversifying from like for example the oil and gas industry where mm -hmm. a lot of our members are actually coming from. They worked in offshore oil and gas and they have a lot of skills and, and expertise that they can transfer uh, to both offshore wind, tidal, wave, uh, any of them really. Um, and then the other would be to your point, basically investment attraction mm -hmm. to Canada. Uh, so if you look at the Bay of Fundy projects, just as an example with tidal, all of those developers or most of them are international uh, companies that are, you know, intrigued and attracted to work at one of the best title sites in the world. Right. So, a bit of both, basically. Yeah, yeah. I guess, I guess, due to the strength of the tides there, if they can develop technology that can work under those conditions, 
they should be able to work under conditions found elsewhere because that's yeah. probably the most challenging. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. So, and I mean, there's a few other places in the world like that as well. Um, so you'll see pockets of tidal energy development in those places, like in the UK, Pentland Firth is uh, one of the areas, but around Scotland, like Orkney. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I think one of the things that you know we've noticed is that there's so much interest in Nova Scotia because really that provincial government really led the way in terms of policy development and mm -hmm. very specific legislation. So obviously that signals to industry, that this is a place to be. And, and that's kind of how it's, you know, moved forward over the last few years. Right. All right. So cast your mind forward to 2050. Right. Um, if we get all of this right, if we get all of this right, uh, what does the energy picture look like when we get to 2050? And presumably we've reached our goal of net zero 2050. What does the energy picture look like in the marine renewable space when we cast our mind out to 2050? Um, it's 2050, I mean, that's it's almost hard to look out that far, but what I would hope to see, I mean, I think we've built a very good foundation over the last decade, uh, just in terms of R&D that's you know, occurred, our, we have a much better understanding of, um, you know, I had mentioned at the beginning of environmental interaction yeah. uh, and, and, and mitigation, you know, methods as well. Um, so to, in 2050, what I would like to see is uh, really that marine renewables is, is viewed as, you know, a, a technology and resource that is uh, on the same, you know, grounds as solar or wind. It's just as common uh, and, and known about and understood. Uh, maybe, you know, we don't have projects that are as large as some of, of those or hydro, but still it's much more commonplace uh, in mm -hmm. terms of options. And I think that would be the, you know, the picture that we would like to see uh, is that we're no longer kind of at this emerging stage, but it's, it's really contributing to where we need to be, you know, in 2050 and, and to reach climate goals and net zero goals. All right. Okay. Well, Melissa, one of the things that I ask everybody that comes onto the podcast is for um, a book recommendation, a book that either you're reading or you've recently read uh, that we could add to our uh, our our library, our, our flux capacitor uh, uh, reading list. So for you, what book would you recommend that we put on our, our reading list? Okay, so I actually, I'll go with the book that I'm reading right now, just because it's top of mind. Okay. And I will preface this by saying I go back and forth between fiction and nonfiction. Uh, and you probably remember I mentioned in the beginning that I was an English major. So I yep. really like English literature and, and that's kind of, you know, I go to that when I want to kind of take, use my imagination and creativity. Um, so right now I'm reading a book called Mexican Gothic. And uh, I would say for people that are familiar with like Emily Bronte and Wuthering Heights, like kind of those old classics, it's very, it resembles that quite a bit. Um, so it's an interesting, it's an interesting read. I'm about three quarters of the way through right now. Okay. So Mexican Gothic yes. is the recommendation. Yes. And um, I, I will say I've read books I like more, but for the genre and what it's they're trying to do with it, it's, it's interesting. All right. So Mexican Gothic, which is a, says here, a 2020 Gothic horror novel by Mexican Canadian author, Silvia Moreno Garcia. Correct. Yes. Fantastic. We will add Mexican Gothic to our reading list. Alyssa, right. thank you. Thanks very much for, for joining the podcast. Uh, it, was, yeah. it was, yeah, it was great to get a, a bit more of a drill down on marine renewables. Um, really appreciate you taking the time to join. Yes, thank you so much for having me. And I'm glad to have that opportunity to 
to tell you a little more about what we're up to. Thanks for joining me for this episode of The Flux Capacitor. I hope you're enjoying these conversations. Please take the time to rate the pod, and we welcome any comments on what you hear on the podcast. The website of this podcast can be found at thefluxcapacitor.ca, including links for this episode on the show page. And while you're there, check out the Book Club page, which provides info and links to the books which have been recommended by guests on The Flux Capacitor. I'm packing my gear and soon making my way to the United Nations Climate Change Conference in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt. Stay tuned for podcasts I'll record on the ground at COP27. And let's continue the electricity conversation on our Facebook page, on Twitter, and at electricity.ca.